grab your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 26. You can download a Bible app on your phone, uh, or you can get a free Bible over here on the table. Our live stream is down today. The internet in the theater is not working, so I would say good morning to everyone online, but there's nobody to say good morning to. Uh, if you are in one of the other theaters, good morning. My name's Chris, and uh, many of us will just get this out of the way. Uh, yeah, I had COVID. Uh, I'm not a leper. I'm good. I've had knee scrapes, not going to lie, that were worse than that. Uh, my whole family got it. We were, we were fine. By, by hour 27, I was doing push-ups in my bedroom. So um, anyway, all, all good, all good. Uh, we are in week 119, let's go, of the Gospel of Matthew. We're getting so close, but we're going to drag this out for a few more weeks. Uh, we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew for like, I don't know, way, way before COVID was a thing, I can tell you that. Uh, we've been doing it for a long time. Uh, and we're getting towards the end, okay? We're, we're nearing the end. And uh, many of you might be familiar with uh, a Christian author. We're going to talk about him a couple times. He's going to get referenced a couple times today, C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Many of you are probably familiar with his works. He's kind of known as a Christian uh, thinker, bit of a theologian, bit of an apologist, kind of did a whole bunch of different things. But uh, after he died in 1963, uh, a lot of his unpublished uh, works, letters that he'd written, articles that he had written that didn't, go pub uh, didn't get published, got put together, uh, and, and they were published in a book. And that book was called God on the Dock. Uh, and the idea is, this is, this is C.S. Lewis saying, like, God on trial. A dock was a, an English term for, like, this box that you would put an accused person in while they were in the courtroom. And kind of the idea that Lewis had with the, the or that was... Uh, the, the uh, inspiration for the title, I should say, was this idea that Lewis had that in, in the modern Western world, like in this enlightened reality that we live in, uh, what we tend to do is we tend to put God on trial, right? We, we come to him and we don't submit ourselves to him as the one who is the judge over us, but rather we come to him and we impose ourselves over him and we put him on trial. We, we ask questions of him. We decide whether we like what he has to say or doesn't have to say. Uh, and, and really what Lewis is getting after is, is this idea that as, that as a people, we are, we are so prideful. Well, we are so arrogant. We lack so much humility that we would be presumptuous enough to place ourselves over God. So it's one of the reasons uh, why we... Uh, order our gathering the way we do, for example. It's one of the reasons why we regularly confess sin publicly. It sounds horrible, right? It sounds horrible to publicly confess sin. But, but here's what happens when you don't do that. When you, when you stop publicly confessing your sin, when you stop privately confessing your sin, here, here's what happens. You forget that you're a sinner. And when you forget that you're a sinner, you forget that you need to be saved. And when you forget that you need to be saved, all of a sudden Jesus becomes a whole lot less important. It's one of the reasons why we want to have a public reading of Scripture, because we want to come underneath the Word of God as opposed to stand over top of the Word of God. And so as a people, we try and posture ourselves in such a way that, that God is over us, not we are over God. But here's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is put on trial. That, that in the same way that Lewis says we as a people put God on trial, right here in Matthew chapter 26, humanity actually puts the God of the universe on trial. It's staggering. As we're getting towards the end of the, the Jesus story, what we're starting to see is the ugliest parts of humanity manifesting themselves. 
The, the darkness of humanity is being brought into the light. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus himself is put on trial. So Matthew chapter 26, picking up in verse 57, here is what Matthew writes. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So if you remember from last week, Matt talked about this, but Judas uh, led some of the religious leaders, guards, and mercenaries to where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they had Jesus arrested. Uh, and just to frame up exactly where we are in the, the, the Jesus story, we're in the last week. So this is probably, well, it is, this is Friday morning of the last week of the life of Jesus. Uh, so this would be what we know as Good Friday. And so these people have Jesus arrested, and they drag him to Caiaphas' house. And Caiaphas was the, the highest... Uh, he, he was the highest ruling religious official in, amongst God's people. And so they brought him there. And what they are trying to do, this has kind of been brewing, right? This has been going on for some time all through, since Matthew chapter 20, really. There's been this brewing conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus, where they've come in conflict with one another, where Jesus has been condemning them. They haven't been liking what Jesus has had to say. They've openly said, we need to plot uh, his death, and it's starting to come to fruition. Verse 58, but Peter followed them at a distance. Peter being one of Jesus' disciples, and this is setting us up for the next scene, right up to the courtyard of the high priest, and he entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So the scene is set, okay? They're at Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas, you know, because of his stature within the community, his house was large, he was wealthy, big enough that he could have most of the ruling council of, of the nation of Israel there, like the, the full council would have been 72 people. We're not sure if it's all 72, but his house is large enough that he's able to host a trial in it. There's a courtyard where there's a bunch of people observing, watching, which is where Peter is. And here, here we are, right? This is, this is where this whole scene has been going so far. Jesus and the religious leaders once and for all coming face to face. And so the trial starts. Here's, here's how it goes. Verse 59. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence, evidence against Jesus so they could what? So they could put him to death. Did you notice what Matthew records? They bring Jesus in for a trial. And what are they, what are they looking for? They're looking for the truth. No, no, Matthew records that they were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. This is exactly what C.S. Lewis is talking about uh, in his analogy that inspired the title of, his, of that last book of all of his publications, God on the Dock. This idea that the religious leaders weren't actually interested in what Jesus had to say. They weren't, they weren't actually interested in his words, who he claimed to be. They were more interested in their own agenda, their own ideas, their own worldview, and preserving what they had built for themselves. And, and this, this really is exactly how God is dealt with in our culture. You see, here's what you're going to find when it comes to the way that people think about God. Most people don't actually have a huge problem with God. I don't know if you talk to a lot of people that don't go to church. You're not going to find a lot of uh, what I would call like ardent or hard atheists who just absolutely are passionate about hating God. There's a few out there, but that's not going to be the majority of people. Uh, most people have, have this view of God in their mind that, that he's kind of like this fluffy sky fairy. 
and he affirms everything that they already believe about the world. It's exactly like the religious leaders, right? They have this worldview. They have this idea of the way the world works. Jesus confronts it. What do they want to do? They want to do whatever they can to put him to death. I mean, there's a bunch of ironies in what's taking place here. Uh, in, in the religious law, there were a ton, like, like a, 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 almost an infinite number of regulations around the way a trial was to be conducted. And, and we won't go into the details of, of it this morning because it's a little, a little bit monotonous and tedious. But they were functionally all being broken in this trial. And, and the irony is that these religious leaders, the, the, the council, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, these were the ones who were supposed to uphold all of these laws. But they were actually breaking the laws in order to find something that they could pin on Jesus so that they had an excuse to kill him. Why? Because he confronted what they believed about the world. He confronted this religious system that they had built up, that they were a part of, that they were benefiting from, and they didn't like what Jesus was saying, and so they wanted to have him killed. And it's easy for us to, 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 to read this, to, to look at what's happening here, to look at the way the religious leaders are behaving, look down at them, but to do so would be to miss the point of the story. Because back to Lewis's point, this is what we do to Jesus. There are so many people who, who have walked away from Jesus, who have rejected Jesus, not because of who he's claimed he is, but because they don't like who he's claimed that he is. There's so many people who, who have rejected Jesus because of bad experiences in church, uh, because they've seen Christians who haven't, uh, you know, who, who haven't lived up to the name of, as a follower of Jesus. And so they take these things that have nothing to do with Jesus at all, and then they use those as an excuse to walk away from him. I mean, right now is a time in the life of the church. I mean, it is so divisive. I mean, we, I have experienced people who have walked away from Jesus because of, uh, the, 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 they would say that the church has not taken COVID seriously enough. And so they accuse them of not loving people, right? You, you know, you, you haven't followed, you followed all the rules, but that's not enough. There's other rules that we've put on top of the rules, and we need you to follow those rules too. And if you don't follow those rules too, then you're not taking COVID seriously enough. And because of that, gee, you know, I'm going to walk away from the whole thing. But we've had people on the other end of the spectrum who said, because you're following any of the rules, you're not loving people well enough. And because you're not following any of the rules, we're going to walk away from Jesus. We're going to walk away from the church. Like, it's a fun day at the office, right, when you got that going on. It's like getting beat like a pinata on Cinco de Mayo. It doesn't matter what you do. Someone's going to be upset. It's been that way for, like, the last two and a half years or whatever. Woohoo! My point is this, though, so often what ends up happening is you're sitting there just like the religious leaders, you're looking at Jesus, he's speaking to you, but you can't actually hear what he's saying. And the reason you can't hear what he's saying is because you have these other things, these other ideas that, that get in the way. Everybody loves the God who agrees with them all the time. And it's easy to look at those outside of the church and cast aspersions upon them, but here's what I would say. Here, Jesus' confrontation is with those inside the church. He's actually talking to the religious leaders, the people that should know, 
talking to us. How many of us, while we might not, I mean, you're here, it's Sunday morning, you know, it's not a popular time to be in large groups of people where they're singing and all the stuff that we do together that's going on, but you're here, so you obviously are committed. So you haven't, like, outright rejected Jesus, right? You might not put him on trial to have him killed, but here's the reality, though, right? We love Jesus as Savior, but when it comes to Jesus Christ as Lord, how does that go? There's parts of our lives There's ways in which he's called us to live. And we know what they are and we reject them. We say no to them. It's no different. Maybe it's the sex ethic that's taught in the scriptures. Maybe it's the way that we handle our finances. Maybe it's, you know, using our spiritual gifts giving up of our time, whatever it is, there's all these things Jesus calls us to, to love our spouse, to love our kids, to love our neighbor. Like, I mean, it's an endless list, right? Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily and follow him. And I think it's easy for us to make excuses as to why we are the exception to the rule. And to do so, to position yourself like that, is to do exactly what C.S. Lewis says we shouldn't do, which is to put God on trial. It's to put ourselves over God, acting as judge and jury over him, rather than humbly submitting ourselves to his lordship. We've got to wrestle with that. Again, it's easy to look at, at these religious leaders and be baffled by them. But to do so would be to miss Matthew's point. We are the religious leaders. That's us. We are the Caiaphases in the story. Matthew goes on. He writes this in verse 60, but they did, they did not find, they, they did not find any, any false witnesses, though many false witnesses came forward. So a bunch of people come forward. They give false testimony against Jesus. Here's what they're looking for, though. You'll see this in the next verse. They're actually looking for testimony that corroborates, right? It's not enough to just have one person or or two people give false testimony. You have to have false testimony, and and according to Jewish law, that actually corroborates Matthew, or Mark, rather, in his retelling of this story. says, many false witnesses came forward, but none of them could agree. And then look at what it says next. Finally, two came forward, verse 61, and they declared. here's, Here's what these false witnesses declared. This fellow said, so talking about Jesus, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So all these witnesses come forward. They give testimony against Jesus. None of it, you know, none of it is anything that can stick to Jesus. So then these other two, uh, these other two witnesses come forward and, and they give testimony. And again, I'll read it again. Their testimony is this. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it. In three days. Now, this is a very big accusation they're making against Jesus. Uh, we have, we've kind of touched on this multiple times, especially since we've gotten to Matthew chapter 20. But the temple was a very big deal in the Jewish kind of religious tradition. It was this, the, the epicenter of their culture and their religious practice. 
according to, to Jewish law and just the, the story of God, this is where the presence of God actually dwelled. This is where they would come annually for the Passover feast, which is actually the time that Jesus is in Jerusalem. So this is the Passover week. And they would come for Passover feast and they would have their sins forgiven. Like this was the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. And so this accusation that they are making against Jesus that he will destroy the temple, it's a really big deal. What they are saying is, if the temple is destroyed, our faith is destroyed. Our religious system is now invalid. If there's no temple, where do we go to worship God? If there's no temple, where do we go to have sins forgiven? These are all really good questions you should ask your Jewish friends, by the way. How is this going to work? And so this this is a big accusation that is being made against Jesus. Is it a false accusation? Well, sort of, but not entirely. If you have your Bibles, quickly... Or you don't have to turn there. I'll read them. I think these verses will be on the screen. John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, this is what they're actually referencing. In John chapter 2, Jesus has an interaction with religious leaders, with a bunch of people. He's in the temple courts. Here's what he says. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. So there's the accusation. Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. Did he say it? Yeah, he said it. That's what he said. So it's not false. There's some truth to what they're saying. But then notice what Jesus, notice what happens next. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build the temple, uh, and you're going to raise it in three days, verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So was Jesus talking about a physical destruction of the temple? The answer is no. He's talking about his own body. And then look at in verse 22. I don't think this will be on the screen. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. What is Jesus talking about in John chapter 2? He's talking about himself. See, what Jesus is not saying is that the temple was going to be physically destroyed. It's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that the temple will no longer be valid It will no longer be necessary. Why? Because he is going to be the fulfillment of the temple. The temple was where the presence of God dwelt. What is Jesus? Jesus is the presence of God in bodily form. Uh, The temple was where the people of God would have to go to have their sins forgiven. What is going to happen in just a few short pages in Matthew's gospel? He's going to go to the cross, and he's going to die on the cross in our place for our sins. The writer of the book of Hebrews calls it the once and for all sacrifice, meaning we no longer have to go to the temple anymore to have sacrifice for our sins because all we have to do is come to Jesus because he is the once and for all sacrifice. Interestingly enough, this is a whole other sermon for another day. Maybe we'll get to preach this at some point. But the Apostle Paul in in, uh, 1 Corinthians actually calls us the, the, the temple of God. What happens after the resurrection of Jesus? He ascends into heaven and the spirit of God falls on the people of God. And, and guess what, church? We are now the temple of God. We are the presence of God. We are the mediators of God's grace and mercy to our city. But here's my point. That's a, that's a whole side point. Here's my point. What Jesus was saying to them was actually what they were looking for, but they didn't know it. They couldn't see it. What Jesus was offering these religious leaders, what he was offering by saying what he said in John chapter 2 was a relationship with God. It was the forgiveness of sin. It was the presence 
of God made manifest among them. It was the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They actually wanted what Jesus was offering, but they couldn't. They couldn't receive it. They couldn't see it. Because they had this preconceived idea and notion of who Jesus was supposed to be, of what the Messiah was supposed to be. We'll talk about that in a second. But more than that, they couldn't see because they had their own ideas of the way the world was supposed to work and the way that God was supposed to work. There's a warning here for us. There's a warning here that we are not to be the ones who are supposed to position ourselves and posture ourselves over God, but rather we are to humbly submit ourselves to him. We are supposed to say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I need something from outside of me to come in, to save me, to tell me how to live my life. I need to humble myself and submit myself to the lordship of Christ. And to not do that is to miss the point. It's to be like the religious leaders, to put Jesus on trial. It's to deny who he actually is. But there's something else here. I don't know, this is maybe just kind of where I'm at in my life right now. I have no idea if this is actually uh, what this text is trying to implicate, but I'm just going to go for it, okay? We'll just go for it, see how it goes. That always ends well. There's a group of people here, I'm going to assume the best, okay? Because these religious leaders, although they can be painted as evil If you were just to to read this narrative back through the cross, you know, we're like, why are you hurting our guy, Jesus? But the reality is this. These were were some of the most um, morally upright citizens of the day. Like, you would want these guys to be your neighbors. Let's put it that way. Their grass is always going to be cut. Their garbage, you know. Like, at our house, we never know if it's garbage day or not. We look at our neighbors. Their garbage day is like, okay, that's these guys. Like, they're great neighbors, Awesome members of the community. They actually longed, think about this, they had an internal longing and desire to please God. Perhaps misinformed, certainly misappropriated. How many people in our city, think about this with me for a second, they don't hate God, They just don't know. Like what they actually need is Jesus, but they reject him not actually knowing what they're rejecting. They just don't understand. Like we're going to see in a few verses, Caiaphas accuses Jesus of blasphemy, right? And his accusation against Jesus of blasphemy is actually his admission that he knows now who Jesus is, he understands what Jesus is saying, and then it's his rejection of Jesus. There's lots of people that hear the claims of Jesus and then they reject Jesus, but how many people actually reject Jesus and they don't even really know what they're rejecting? Like we saw that video of the baptisms, which was spectacular, fantastic to see people get baptized. We've got more baptisms actually coming up at the end of the month. If you want to get baptized, come talk to us. Fantastic. I posted some photos or some video on, on my social media as that was taking place. Non-Christian friend of mine who I've been playing basketball with for a long time 
wrote to me and said, pardon my expression, but this is what happens when you hang out with non-Christians, okay? What the hell is that? What are you doing to those people? <laughs> Had no idea. I said, it's a baptism. What is that? <laughs> Never heard of it before. So this is my friend, no idea, not a follower of Jesus at all, hasn't rejected Jesus because of what he said, just doesn't even know. But I think what Jesus is actually offering is exactly what they're looking for. But they just don't know. That's where we come in, right? That's who we are. We are the people that get to bring the gospel to the people that don't yet know who Jesus actually is. Like, that's what it means to be the temple of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We are the, the presence of God made manifest wherever it is that you are. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, I don't know if that, I just wanted to work that in. I have no idea if that's part of what this teaching is all about. But now notice what Jesus does in response. So this, uh, uh, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God, rebuild it in three days. Verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? So now the high priest is getting kind of frustrated. He's really wanting to pin something on Jesus. He feels like this is it. We've got him right where we want him. Now look at what Jesus says. Nothing. Verse 63. But Jesus remained Silent. He said nothing. Uh, one of the commentators that I that, that I read, who's commenting on what Jesus didn't say here, he described this as sovereign silence. Sovereign silence. If you were to go back a few weeks, this would have been before Christmas. Uh, we preached where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has this like kind of power struggle with his heavenly father where, where he says, Father, take this cup from me. I, like, I don't want to go to the cross, right? It's going to hurt. It's going to be awful. I'm going to experience the full measure of the sin of the world on my shoulders. This is not what I want to endure. Can you take this cup from me? Father says no. And he says, okay, then not my will, but your will be done. From that point Forward, Jesus quietly, humbly walks towards the cross. Sovereign silence. He knew. He knew that he was perfectly walking in the will of his heavenly father. Can I suggest that there's a lesson for us here? Perhaps a, a timely lesson, and I, I want to thread the needle and tread oh so delicately. But if you were just to weigh injustices, I would go out on a limb, and I think anyone who is a follower of Jesus would agree with me that this is the greatest injustice in all of human history. The perfect, sinless Jesus going to the cross. But Jesus remained silent. Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers silent. 
So he did not open his mouth. We are living in a time, apart from the chaos of COVID and some of the other things that are happening in our world, but we are living in a time where we feel like it is our right, and I would go so far as to say our obligation to make sure everyone knows what we think all the time. Social media has provided a platform for us to air our grievances to the world and make us feel like our voice is being heard, even though no one's, I've never read anything on social media and changed my opinion about anything ever. I don't know about you, but all that meme about the guy on the toilet really did me in. I've totally been convinced now. (laughs) But there is a reality where there's a lot of things and a lot of perspectives and a lot of opinions. But I think we need to be careful I don't think it's always our place to make our voice heard on every single issue all the time. And I'm not here to tell you how to live your life, and I'm not here to tell you what you should and shouldn't post on COVID. You do you. But I know this. Jesus spent the night in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, seeking the will of his Father before he made this decision. Most of the time, when I share something on social media, it's like, I wonder how many people I can take off with this. <laughs> That's my rubric for spirit-led. Don't do that, do Jesus. <laughs> but my point is this. Are we walking in humble obedience to the Father? Here we have Jesus faced with the greatest injustice that has been known to man, and he remained silent. What what about us? I won't say any more about that. Next part of verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. So the high priest, he's kind of getting angry now. Okay, He's, He's actually about to bring charges upon Jesus. So he says... I charge you under oath by, uh, by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus' silence is frustrating Caiaphas. He wants Jesus just to say something so he can move this process along, so they can finally get him killed, so they can get back to what they were already doing. Because they don't want a Jesus that's going to tell them how to live their lives. They want a Jesus that they can just do away with and get on with the life that they're currently living. They don't want to conform to Jesus. They want to put him on trial, not come underneath his authority and sit underneath his judgment. And they say, tell us. Are you the Messiah or not? Now, you have to understand these words, Messiah, Son of God, some translations will use the word Christ. These are loaded terms. I mean, we could do a whole sermon just on these terms. I won't do that. Here's what I'll say, though. When they talk about Messiah, when when you hear Caiaphas talk about Messiah, this was this vision that God's people had that was promised in the Old Testament of one who would come from God, who would rescue and save the people of God. But here is what happened. The people of God corrupted God's intent for that word and filled it with all kinds of political baggage and all kinds of political imagery. And so instead of a a vision for a God who would come and save them from evil and come and save them from sin, they had become such such navel-gazing people, so concerned about themselves that their highest ideal for what God could actually save them from was from earthly tyranny. 
So they no longer had a vision of being saved from sin because they didn't think they were sinless. They were God's chosen people. They're one of the special ones, right? They're the 99.9%. They're the exceptions to the rule. Their vision was a Messiah who would come. And in this case, because Roman had, uh, Rome had rule over peop- the people of God, a Messiah who would come and free them from Roman rule, from Roman tyranny, and would elevate the people of God back to this place of prominence among the, amongst the earth. It was a political vision. It wasn't a godly vision. It wasn't a spiritual kingdom. It was an earthly kingdom. And notice what Jesus says, right? Now they're pressing in. They're hemming him in. And and it's probably worth noting this. This this debate right now is, is hot for sure in the United States, but it's even becoming widely contested within Canada. What does it actually mean that Jesus Christ is Lord? And I would submit to us that we have to be very, very, very careful. There are many churches, there are many leaders, there are many theological movements that, in my opinion, they have supplanted Jesus' vision for the kingdom with a political ideology a picture of what it looks like to be free in Canada or free in the United States or our rights or what we're entitled to. The promise of Jesus is forgiveness of sin, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and walking in wholeness with him in eternity. Most of the Christians in the world have no idea what kind of freedom we're talking about when we start to talk about political freedom. We have to be careful. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for those rights. I'm not saying we can't have opinions about those things. I'm just saying be very, very careful that we don't supplant a political ideology for the kingdom because they're two very different things, and you will get yourself into trouble. Okay, second side sermon over. Back to the text. Verse 64, Jesus said this. So Caiaphas comes at him. Just say it. Say you're the Messiah. Say that you're the Son of God. Verse 64, you have said so. So what is Jesus saying here? He's like, yes. Yes, but then look at what Jesus says next. Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he's saying this to Caiaphas. Caiaphas comes at him with this accusation that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Just say that that's what you're saying. And Jesus says, you're right. That is what I'm saying. But I'm going I'm to straighten some things out here. Because the kind of Messiah that y'all are talking about is not the kind of Messiah that I am talking about. And again, loaded terms here, but Jesus borrows from Daniel chapter 7. He borrows from Psalm 110. These are are Old Testament prophecies that talk about the kind of Messiah that is to come. And he takes all of those and he applies them to himself. And, And here's really, if I could just boil down what Jesus is saying. Here is what he is saying. In the simplest of terms, I am God. I am God. Throughout history, there have been countless attempts to try and explain the uniqueness of Christ. 
There are many who have said he is a great moral teacher. There are many who have said he is a, a religious leader. There are many who have said he is a great example or he's a humanitarian. All of those things are true and more, friends. We have an opportunity. You have an opportunity. Just like Caiaphas had an opportunity, just like the, the religious leaders had an opportunity to sit face to face with Jesus and, and not hear secondhand who he says he is, to not hear from a bad church experience or for some Christians who have hijacked the gospel and turned it into something that it's not intended to be, but to sit face to face with Jesus eyeball to eyeball and hear from him who he actually is. And I want you to hear what he's saying here. He is saying, I am God. And the question that you and I have to answer is how will we respond to that? In effect, will we put him on trial? Or will we humbly submit? Friends, they didn't kill Jesus because he was a real nice guy. Because he held lambs and babies. They kill him because he said stuff like this, and they didn't like it. And some of you are going to functionally kill him because you don't like it. I don't want a God that tells me I'm wrong sometimes. I like the fluffy fairy sky God that does whatever I tell him and agrees with me all the time. But here Jesus says, I am God. C.S. Lewis, back to him, has this quote in Mere Christianity. It's one that many of you have probably heard. Some have called it the great trilemma. But here's what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the, the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. What will you say? What will you say? I need to close. Uh, I'll invite the band to come up. Read these last few verses here. As we move into a time of communion. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes. So Caiaphas tears his clothes. Notice what he says. He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What? Do you think? So blasphemy, he's 
The definition, the simplest definition is speaking in a contemptuous way about God. He's accusing Jesus of doing that by claiming he's God. So in other words, Caiaphas understands what Jesus is saying, right? He, he understands exactly what Jesus is saying. He's like, you can't say that. That's why he's tearing his clothes. This is like a sign of grief or anger or frustration. So he fully understands. And then, and then he, he says to the rest of the council, what do you think? Here's what they say. He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face. They struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Friends, if Jesus was lying, like if this was all a big scam, like wouldn't this be the time, right? Like if you're that guy, like if you're the guy, you're making it all up. It's like, ha, ha, ha. Just wanted to see if I get you to believe me. Isn't this the time where you're like, okay, I think now I'm going to... Uh, just joking. Like when I lie, when I lie, that sounds horrible. But I do sometimes, and so do you. Liars go to hell, and Jesus died for liars. Okay? It's okay. We're sinners here. Whenever I lie or deceive or curb the truth, here's why I do it to benefit myself. What benefit is Jesus going to gain from this if he's lying? None. He's going to die. In a few verses, he is going to die a horrible, painful death. He's going to be tortured to death. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. What's happening here? What is happening here? Here is what we are seeing. And it's going to get ratcheted up further and more as the story progresses. We are seeing a collision between evil and good. What we are seeing here in the response of these religious leaders is simply this, the ugliness of sin. The ugliness of sin that they would sit in front of the Lord Jesus and spit on him. Mock him. Blindfold him and beat him. And later on this day, they're going to hand him over to Pilate. And Pilate is going to have him crucified. And all the people are going to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And they're going to trade Jesus in for Barabbas. And Now, is Jesus a victim? No, don't, don't hear me say Jesus is a victim to evil. He's not a victim to evil. Remember, sovereign silence. This was his plan before the foundation of the earth. But what I'm saying is this. We are seeing on display what happens when the human heart is laid bare. And God in his kindness and his mercy walks into the evil, into the ugly, into the brokenness, into the sin. And he goes to the cross. He experiences the fullness of all the ugly, all the sin, all the brokenness. And then here's the beauty of his grace and his mercy. I don't understand it. I don't understand the ways of God. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. Thanks be to God for that. But he actually uses the sin and the ugly and the darkness and the evil and the brokenness to bring redemption. When we go to the cross, we see all the darkness of humanity laid bare as Jesus is tortured and dies. But in that same moment, God uses it. He redeems it 
to bring about the forgiveness of our sins. So yeah, we're a room full of sinners. Yeah, we're a room full of Caiaphas's. We're a room full of people who have put Jesus on trial. If we were there and Caiaphas said, what should we do? We would not be the one saying, well, I think he's God. We would have been the one saying, kill him. And guess what? God offers us his mercy and his grace. He's going to pray for these men on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He prays that for you and he prays that for me. It's beautiful. And so as we come to the communion table, that's what, that's what communion is a picture of. It's a picture of both, of, our, of both our sin and the grace of Jesus. So I invite you to take your communion elements out. This wafer is a picture it's a picture of the body of Christ, the body of Christ that was on trial in Matthew 26, the body of Christ that was spat upon, the body of Christ that was beaten by these religious leaders, the body of Christ that will go to the cross and it will be broken in our place for our sins. Take this in and experience the forgiveness of your sin from God. This cup, which represents the blood of Christ, the blood that he sweat while he prayed in the garden, the blood that assuredly dripped from his forehead as he was beat by the religious leaders in chapter 26, the blood that will certainly be poured out of his body as he goes to the cross. Shed for us, for Caiaphas's, for religious leaders, for sinners. This is his prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Take in remembrance of him. Jesus, we thank you. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy, but you give. Unending, unceasing, even for those who would have you killed even for those who fail you in all the ways that we fail you, you forgive. And for that, we are grateful. And Lord, we pray that you would, oh, you'd fill us with the knowledge of your love and grace. You'd fill us with your mercy and fill us with your spirit. And we'd bring this beautiful truth of the gospel from this place to our homes, to our marriage, into our relationship with our kids and into our city. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's children said,